Dr. Rabdin commented on the ATAC trial comparing anastrozole to tamoxifen in postmenopausal women. This study was first reported in December 2001 and now has been followed by a series of other trial reports on all three available AIs, all demonstrating an advantage over tamoxifen. I met with Dr. Richard Sainsbury, who has been a key figure in the ATAC effort, and he began our conversation by commenting on the background of the study. The ATAC trial was a unique trial in that it took a drug that had been through phase 1 development and moved it straight to phase 3. Anastrozole never went through a phase 2 development program, and that's, I think, been unique in any breast cancer trial, and I think gave the big advantage to the ATAC organisation in that they were able to get in there quickly and get started quickly. And what was the thinking in the initial design of the study? The initial design, and I have a photograph of the original envelope upon which it was sketched out, in fact, by Jeff Tobias, was initially that this was going to be a two-by-two factorial design, which is very much the way the cancer research campaign had run trials in the past. But it soon became clear that that wasn't going to be a feasible design and that many people felt at the time that the combination was going to be superior because you've got two active drugs, therefore they would be better. But that turned out, as we saw, not to be the case. The first meeting where the results were given, we were all asked to write down on a piece of paper what our best guess was, and only two of the steering committee got it right. (laughs) So we were still, even though we were well on with the trial, we still, until Jack Cusick presented the first results to us, we hadn't worked out which drug was going to be better or that the combination was not going to work. Can you sort of summarize where you think we're at right now in terms of the use of aromatase inhibitors in the adjuvant setting? Aromatase inhibitors are taking over from tamoxifen, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is the side effect profile is favorable. The other is that the drugs appear to have better efficacy. So it's a double-edged or a win-win situation. Tamoxifen's not as bad as it's been made out. I suspect it is being tarnished a little at the moment. But undoubtedly, side effects were there, and when they occurred, were serious. And I think as surgeons, we didn't appreciate the morbidity that tamoxifen could cause when we did elective surgery. And I would still urge any patient that's on tamoxifen to come off it for a month if they need an elective operation. How come? The venous thromboembolic side effects. Hmm. And that we noticed in the IBIS-1 prevention trial, which is where obviously a thromboembolic event is much more serious than if it's a therapeutic agent. And the excess deaths in the IBIS-1 study were caused by thromboembolic events associated with elective surgery. Can you talk a little bit about what your perspective is in terms of the side effects and complications of tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitors? As surgeons, we obviously worry about the thromboembolic risk for our patients. Vasomotor symptoms are less on the aromatase inhibitors. They're not gone completely but they seem to disappear quicker than our patients did on tamoxifen. A lot of people achieve tolerance with vasomotor symptoms. Those that are on the aromatase inhibitors... Gynecologic problems. Much less. The data that Sean Duffy has produced from the sub-protocol, the endometrial sub-protocol from ATAC, has clearly shown that there's a reduced number of investigations, reduced number of hysterectomies, and therefore there's a much better gynecological side effect profile. That's with the anastrozole. That's with the anastrozole. The major side effects for the aromatase inhibitors appear to be the joint and bone problems, the increase in osteoporosis. At least that's manageable. And certainly in the United Kingdom, we have begun to appreciate the whole concept of skeletal health as a problem. And we really had not got to grips with osteoporosis in a female population as a subject. 
and we have had to tackle that head on. And there are probably one and a half million women in the United Kingdom at risk of osteoporosis who don't know it. At least now the patients with breast cancer are getting their DEXA scans so we know exactly where they are in the osteoporotic scale and we can institute therapies if needed. What are some of the preventive strategies that you utilize? We carry out a DEXA scan on someone who's about to start an aromatase inhibitor. If a DEXA scan is more than two and a half standard deviations away from the T-score, we will institute anti-osteoporotic therapy. Or if they've had an osteoporotic-related fracture, if they've had a lumbar fracture or other fractures. If their T-score is within one standard deviation, then we re-monitor them at a year to see if it's changed. For the group in the middle, there is debate about the best way to go. And I think what's going to happen, because we're relatively new into this game, but I think what's going to happen in clinical practice is that we will re-monitor them at a year. If their T-score has deteriorated, they'll then start therapy with the bisphosphonate. We're recommending that all women take calcium and vitamin D, but there's actually very little evidence that that makes a difference. What about sun exposure? That's an interesting one. I talked recently with some Australian oncologists who tell me that they're seeing rickets in Australia for the first time ever as part of the cover-up campaign. So children are now wearing hats and very high-factor sunscreens and are not getting their vitamin D exposure. In the United Kingdom, as you know, the sun never shines anyway. So, <laughs> But uh, no, seriously, with global warming, we're seeing a lot more sun. And we are not making recommendations at the moment for sunshine. Exercise? Exercise is generally recommended. We're becoming very much like the States. We're having a population that are obese and indolent. As a general health strategy, exercise is being recommended. Now, what was seen in the trials of taste inhibitors, including the attack trial in terms of fractures? We've seen for the duration that patients are taking the aromatase inhibitor an increase in fracture rate of the order of about 2%. We're seeing bone loss of 1 to 1.5, 2% per year while patients are on their therapy. Once they stop it, and there's only one set of data so far that shows any effect after five years of an aromatase inhibitor, that so far the fracture rate drops very dramatically, very quickly. Now that's going to need following out for longer, and that's very preliminary data, but certainly in the ATAC bone sub-protocol, the patients that finished their therapy had gone back to normal a year after finishing therapy. Now, in the ATAC trial and the other studies of aromatase inhibitors, there wasn't really preventive bone density monitoring use of bisphosphonates. When those kinds of strategies are utilized, do you have any thoughts about whether or not there actually is going to be an increased fracture rate? I think we'll not see that. I think that if we pick the patients who are already at risk up front and treat them appropriately, we're not going to see an excess fracture risk. Can you talk a little bit about the musculoskeletal syndrome that's seen with aromatase inhibitors and what you typically see and what's the clinical course? For a minority of patients, this can be severe. In its severest form, they have difficulty with the small joints, especially of a hand and especially first thing in the morning. And the most common complaint in society that drinks a lot of tea and especially has their early morning cup of tea is that they can't hold their cup of tea till about 10 o'clock in the morning. It does appear to be self-limiting in that from the ATAC adverse effect profile, majority of this appears to have gone away after five or six months. Now, whether or not people just stop complaining about it, but any patient who had previously registered a complaint, that had to be specifically inquired about when they came for subsequent visits. So I think it probably is a real effect rather than just people stopping complaining. 
What are some of the management strategies that are effective? So far, little has been shown to be effective. We found that people who took a COX-2 inhibitor generally did quite well, but then we ran into the Viox problem and the COX-2 inhibitors. But I certainly have got some patients who take celecoxib regularly and find that that controls the discomfort. Speaking of cardiovascular issues, can you comment on what's been seen in terms of cardiovascular events with trials using the three different aromatase inhibitors to this point? When the Big I-98 trial first reported, it appeared that there was a slight excess of non-breast cancer deaths, and that appeared to be related to cardiac deaths. And that seemed to be different from the ATAC group. And so the ATAC Safety Monitoring Committee went and looked specifically at that and found no excess of deaths with the anastrozole. Whether this is a spurious blip, it's only a small number, and the next analysis, I think, will give us some indication of whether that's true. What is of interest is the other main difference between the anastrozole and letrozole randomized studies was the excess of grade 1 hypercholesterolemia seen with letrozole. Whether or not that's clinically significant is uncertain because this was just a biochemical raise which was not seen nearly as much with the anastrozole. The XMSTAIN study also showed a slight excess of cardiac events, but not to the same extent of letrozole. And of course, that's a different agent in that it's a steroidal suicidal agent as opposed to the other two. What about the issue of neoadjuvant endocrine therapy? I've talked to Mike Dixon over the years and always found that fascinating and how differently the surgeons in the other side of the Atlantic approach this compared to the U.S. Can you talk about your experience with that? Indeed, I mean, we've contributed to some of Mike's studies and to our own studies using neoadjuvant or upfront agents. It's a wonderful test bed by taking serial biopsies and seeing what changes happen both proteomically, genomically in the biopsy specimens. We've worked with different agents as well as the aromatase inhibitors in these sorts of studies. I think Mike Dixon's study that was presented at San Antonio was an intriguing one showing that you can extend the use of, in this case, neoadjuvant letrozole, as long as you're monitoring the patient carefully, and that they saw as many responses in three to six and six to 12 months as they did in the first three months, so that it may not happen overnight. And as long as the tumor is at least static or getting slightly smaller, you will probably see a response with time. I think that's a very important bit of information that's out there. Because for many patients, especially the elderly ones, if you're controlling their disease, it's almost a chronic illness. It's not an acute illness. And we know elderly women often live in harmony with their breast cancers for many years, and it's a very different disease from a young woman. What's been seen with the aromatase inhibitors compared to tamoxifen in terms of neoadjuvant therapy? All of them are better. Mike Dixon's group have clearly shown that. We're doing randomized studies of patients comparing tamoxifen with all three of the endocrine agents showing faster time to response, higher percentage response, and prolonged response duration. The impact study, which Ian Smith from the Royal Marsden led, looked at neoadjuvant ATAC using anastrozole, tamoxifen, and the combination. They had relatively small numbers and did not show a statistical difference in response rate, but they did show that patients who were on the aromatase inhibitor were less likely to need mastectomy. Can you talk a little bit about the IBIS-2 trial looking at patients at high risk as well as DCIS? Following on from IBIS-1, which used tamoxifen as a preventative agent and showed a 36% reduction in the incidence of breast cancer, 
the IBIS committee decided to look at an aromatase inhibitor. And we saw in the ATEC study whereby, in addition to the 50% reduction that you might expect from tamoxifen, there was a further 32% reduction in contralateral breast cancers with anastrozole. The problem is that that's only applicable for postmenopausal women. And so there are a cohort of women who are potentially missing out. And it makes the study harder to recruit to. We've got, we're aiming for 6,000 people. There are currently 1,600 randomized in the primary recruitment, which is anastrozole versus placebo. In the DCIS sub-protocol, which is really a grafted-on protocol, for patients with estrogen receptor-positive DCIS, they're randomized to anastrozole or tamoxifen. The DCIS part of that actually is virtually identical, I guess, to the NSABP B35 study comparing also anastrozole versus tamoxifen. What do you think those studies are going to show? When we look at tamoxifen in the early DCIS studies, both the UK DCIS study and the previous NSABP study, There was a slight benefit for tamoxifen, but it didn't replace radiotherapy as a control mechanism for local recurrence. If we're talking about DCIS, which is extensively local disease, it needs local therapy, which is why surgery and radiotherapy are so good. We're really looking at the secondary chemo prevention for these areas of DCIS. Should anastrozole be better in this subgroup? DCIS is quite a slow-growing disease. In the elderly, it tends to be a slower-growing disease than in the premenopausal women, where it tends to be higher-grade and more aggressive. And I suspect we may not, in the time course of these trials, see a difference between two reasonably active endocrine agents. If you see equivalent efficacy within the boundaries of the powers of these studies, do you think that there'll be enough of a difference in the side effects and toxicities to shift over to an astrozole. That may well be so. I was considering efficacy rather than tolerability in my answer, but that may well be the case, yeah. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Breast Cancer Update.